0: Section six of Chapter twenty two of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bill McGovern. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter twenty two. Section six. The chiefs of the Tory party, however, vehemently maintained that the law which required two witnesses was of universal and eternal obligation, part of the law of nature, part of the law of God. Seymour quoted the book of Numbers and the book of Deuteronomy, to prove that no man ought to be condemned to death by the mouth of a single witness. Caiaphas and his Sanhedrin, said Harley, were ready enough to set up the plea of expediency, for a violation of justice. They said, and we have heard such things said, we must slay this man, or the Romans will come and take away our place and nation. Yet even Caiaphas, and his Sanhedrin, in that foulest act of judicial murder, did not venture to set aside the sacred law which required two witnesses. Even Jezebel, said another orator, did not dare to take Naboth's vineyard from him, till she had suborned two men of Balliol to swear falsely. If the testimony of one grave elder had been sufficient, it was asked, what would have become of the virtuous Susanna? This last allusion called forth a cry of Apocrypha, Apocrypha, from the ranks of the low churchmen. Over these arguments, which in truth can scarcely have imposed on those who condescended to use them, montague obtained a complete and easy victory an eternal law where was this eternal law before the reign of edward the sixth where is it now except in statutes which relate only to one very small class of offenses if these texts from the pentateuch and these precedents from the practice of the sanhedrin prove anything they prove the whole criminal jurisprudence of the realm to be a mass of injustice and impiety One witness is sufficient to convict a murderer, a burglar, a highwayman, an incendiary, a ravisher. Nay, there are cases of high treason, in which only one witness is required. One witness can send to Tyburn a gang of clippers and comers. Are you then prepared to say that the whole law of evidence, according to which men have during ages been tried in this country for offenses against life and property, is vicious and ought to be remodeled. If you shrink from saying this, you must admit that we are now proposing to dispense not with a divine ordinance of universal and perpetual obligation, but simply with an English rule of procedure, which applies to not more than two or three crimes, which has not been in force a hundred and fifty years, which derives all its authority from an act of Parliament, and which may therefore be, by another act, abrogated or suspended, without offence, to God or man. It was much less easy to answer the chiefs of the opposition, when they set forth the danger of breaking down the partition which separates the functions of the legislator from those of the judge. This man, it was said, may be a bad Englishman, and yet his cause may be the cause of all good Englishmen. Only last year we passed an act to regulate the procedure of the ordinary courts in cases of treason. We passed that act because we thought that, in those courts, the life of a subject obnoxious to the government was not then sufficiently secured. Yet the life of a subject obnoxious to the government was then far more secure than it will be if this house takes on itself to be the supreme criminal judicature in political cases. Warm eulogies were pronounced on the ancient national mode of trial by twelve good men and true, and indeed the advantages of that mode of trial in political cases are obvious. The prisoner is allowed to challenge any number of jurors with cause, and a considerable number without cause. The twelve from the moment at which they are invested with their short magistracy till the moment when they lay it down are kept separate from the rest of the community. Every precaution is taken to prevent any agent of power from soliciting or corrupting them. Every one of them must hear every word of the evidence and every argument used on either side. The case is then summed up by a judge who knows that, if he is guilty of partiality, he may be called to account by the great inquest of the nation. In the trial of Fenwick, at the bar of the House of Commons, all these securities were wanting. Some hundreds of gentlemen, every one of whom had much more than half made up his mind before the case was opened, performed the functions of both judge and jury. They were not restrained, as a judge is restrained, by the sense of responsibility. For who was to punish a Parliament? They were not selected, as a jury is selected, in a manner which enables the culprit TO EXCLUDE HIS PERSONAL AND POLITICAL ENEMIES. THE ARBITERS OF HIS FATE CAME IN AND WENT OUT AS THEY CHOSE. THEY HEARD A FRAGMENT HERE AND THERE OF WHAT WAS SAID AGAINST HIM, AND A FRAGMENT HERE AND THERE OF WHAT WAS SAID IN HIS FAVOR. DURING THE PROGRESS OF THE BILL THEY WERE EXPOSED TO EVERY SPECIES OF INFLUENCE. ONE MEMBER WAS THREATENED BY THE ELECTORS OF HIS BOROUGH WITH THE LOSS OF HIS SEAT. ANOTHER MIGHT OBTAIN A FRIGATE FOR HIS BROTHER FROM RUSSELL. The vote of a third might be secured by the caresses and burgundy of Wharton. In the debates, arts were practiced and passions excited, which are unknown to well-constituted tribunals, but from which no great popular assembly, divided into parties, ever was or ever will be free. The rhetoric of one orator called forth loud cries of, Hear him! Another was coughed and scraped down. A third spoke against time in order THAT HIS FRIENDS WHO WERE SUPPING MIGHT COME IN TO DIVIDE. IF THE LIFE OF THE MOST WORTHLESS MAN COULD BE SPORTED WITH thus, WAS THE LIFE OF THE MOST VIRTUOUS MAN SECURE? THE OPPONENTS OF THE BILL DID NOT, INDEED, VENTURE TO SAY THAT THERE COULD BE NO PUBLIC DANGER SUFFICIENT TO JUSTIFY AN ACT OF ATTAINDER. THEY ADMITTED THAT THERE MIGHT BE CASES IN WHICH THE GENERAL RULE MUST BEND TO AN OVERPOWERING NECESSITY. BUT WAS THIS SUCH A CASE? even if it were granted for the sake of argument that strafford and monmouth were justly attainted was fenwick like strafford a great minister who had long ruled england north of trent and all ireland with absolute power who was high in the royal favor and whose capacity eloquence and resolution made him an object of dread even in his fall or was fenwick like monmouth a pretender to the crown and the idol of the common people were all the finest youths of three counties crowding to enlist under his banners. What was he but a subordinate plotter? He had indeed once had good employments, but he had long lost them. He had once had a good estate, but he had wasted it. Eminent abilities and weight of characters he had never had. He was, no doubt, connected by marriage with a very noble family, but that family did not share his political prejudices what importance then had he except that importance which his persecutors were most unwisely giving him by breaking through all the fences which guard the lives of englishmen in order to destroy him even if he were set at liberty what could he do but haunt jacobite coffee-houses squeeze oranges and drink the health of king james and the prince of wales if however the government supported by the lords and the commons by the fleet and the army by a militia of one hundred and sixty thousand strong, and by the half million of men who had signed the association, did really apprehend danger from this poor, ruined baronet. The benefit of the habeas corpus act might be withheld from him. He might be kept within four walls as long as there was the least chance of his doing mischief. He could hardly be contended that he was an enemy so terrible that the state could be safe only when he was in the grave. It was acknowledged that precedents might be found for this bill, or even for a bill far more objectionable. But it was said that whoever reviewed our history would be disposed to regard such precedents rather as warnings than as examples. It had many times happened that an act of attainder, passed in a fit of servility or animosity, had, when fortune had changed, or when passion had cooled, been repealed and solemnly stigmatized as unjust. Thus in old times the act which was passed against Roger Mortimer, in the paroxysm of a resentment not unprovoked, had been, at a calmer moment, rescinded, on the ground that, however guilty he might have been, he had not had fair play for his life. Thus, within the memory of the existing generation, the law which attainted tainted Stratford, had been annulled without one dissentient voice. Nor, it was added, ought it to be left unnoticed that whether by virtue of the ordinary law of cause and effect, or by the extraordinary judgment of God, persons who had been eager to pass bills of pains and penalties had repeatedly perished by such bills. No man had ever made a more unscrupulous use of the legislative power for the destruction of his enemies than Thomas Cromwell, and it was by an unscrupulous use of the legislative power that he was himself destroyed. If it were true that the unhappy gentleman, whose fate was now trembling in the balance, had himself formerly borne a part in a proceeding similar to that which was now instituted against him, was not this a fact which ought to suggest very serious reflections? Those who tauntingly reminded Fenwick that he had supported the bill which attainted Monmouth might perhaps themselves be tauntingly reminded, in some dark and terrible hour, that they had supported the bill which had attained Fenwick. Let us remember what vicissitudes we have seen. Let us, from so many signal examples of the inconstancy of fortune, learn moderation and prosperity. How little we thought, when we saw this man a favourite courtier at Whitehall, a general surrounded with military pomp at Hounslow, that we should live to see him standing at our bar, and awaiting his doom from our lips. And how far is it from certain that we may not one day, in the bitterness of our souls, vainly invoke the protection of those mild laws which we now treat so lightly. God forbid that we should ever again be subject to tyranny, but God forbid above all that our tyrants should ever be able to plead, in justification of the worst that they can inflict upon us, precedents furnished by ourselves. These topics skilfully handled produced a great effect on many moderate Whigs. Montague did his best to rally his followers. We still possess the rude outline of what must have been a most effective peroration. Gentlemen warn us, this or very nearly this seems to have been what he said, not to furnish King James with a precedent which, if ever, he should be restored, he may use against ourselves. Do they really believe that, if that evil day shall ever come, this just and necessary law will be the pattern which he will imitate? No, sir, his model will be not our bill of attainder, but his own, not our bill, which on full proof and after a most fair hearing inflicts deserved retribution on a single guilty head, but his own bill, which, without a defense, without an investigation, without an accusation, doomed near three thousand people, whose only crimes were their English blood and their Protestant faith, the men to the gallows and the women to the stake. That is the precedent which he has set, and which he will follow. In order that he never may be able to follow it, in order that the fear of a righteous punishment may restrain those enemies of our country who wish to see him ruling in London, as he ruled at Dublin, I give my vote for this bill. In spite of all the eloquence and influence of the ministry, the minority grew stronger and stronger as the debates proceeded. The question that leave should be given to bring in the bill had been carried by nearly three to one. On the question that the bill should be committed, the eyes were 186, the noes 128. On the question that the bill should pass, the ayes were 189, the noes 156 on the twenty-sixth of november the bill was carried up to the lords before it arrived the lords had made preparations to receive it every peer who was absent from town had been summoned up every peer who disobeyed the summons and was unable to give a satisfactory explanation of his disobedience was taken into custody by black rod on the day fixed for the first reading the crowd on the benches was unprecedented the whole number of temporal lords Exclusive of minors, Roman Catholics, and non jurors was about a hundred and forty of these a hundred and five were in their places. Many thought that the bishops ought to have been permitted, if not required, to withdraw for by an ancient canon, those who ministered at the altars of God were forbidden to take any part in the infliction of capital punishment on the trial of a peer impeached of high treason, the prelates always retire and leave the culprit to be absolved or condemned by laymen and surely if it be unseemly that a divine should doom his fellow-creatures to death as a judge it must be still more unseemly that he should doom them to death as a legislator in the latter case as in the former he contracts that stain of blood which the church regards with horror it will scarcely be denied that there are some grave objections TO THE SHEDDING OF BLOOD BY ACT OF ATTAINDER, WHICH DO NOT APPLY TO THE SHEDDING OF BLOOD IN THE ORDINARY COURSE OF JUSTICE. IN FACT, WHEN THE BILL FOR TAKING AWAY THE LIFE OF STRAFFORD WAS UNDER CONSIDERATION, ALL THE SPIRITUAL PEERS WITHDREW. NOW, HOWEVER, THE EXAMPLE OF CRAMNER, WHO HAD VOTED FOR SOME OF THE MOST INFAMOUS ACTS OF ATTAINDER THAT EVER PASSED, WAS THOUGHT MORE WORTHY OF imitation, AND THERE WAS A GREAT MUSTER OF LAWN SLEEVES. It was very properly resolved that on this occasion the privilege of voting by proxy should be suspended and that the house should be called over at the beginning and at the end of every sitting and that every member who did not answer to his name should be taken into custody. Meanwhile, the unquiet brain of Monmouth was teeming with strange designs. He had now reached a time of life at which youth could no longer be pleaded as an excuse for his faults. But he was more wayward and eccentric than ever both in his intellectual and in his moral character there was an abundance of those fine qualities which may be called luxuries and a lamentable deficiency of those solid qualities which are of the first necessity he had brilliant wit and ready invention without common sense chivalrous generosity and delicacy without common honesty he was capable of rising to the part of the black prince, and yet he was capable of sinking to the part of Fuller. His political life was blemished by some most dishonorable actions, yet he was not under the influence of those motives to which most of the dishonorable actions of politicians are to be ascribed. He valued power little and money less. Of fear he was utterly insensible. If he sometimes stooped to be a villain, for no milder word, will come up to the truth, It was merely to amuse himself and to astonish other people. In civil as in military affairs, he loved ambuscades, surprises, night attacks. He now imagined that he had a glorious opportunity of making a sensation, of producing a great commotion, and the temptation was irresistible to a spirit so restless as his. He knew, or at least strongly suspected, that the stories which fenwick had told on hearsay and which king lords and commons whigs and tories had agreed to treat as calumnies were in the main true was it impossible to prove that they were true to cross the wise policy of william to bring disgrace at once on some of the most eminent men of both parties to throw the whole world into inextricable confusion nothing could be done without the help of the prisoner and with the prisoner it was impossible to communicate directly. It was necessary to employ the intervention of more than one female agent. The Duchess of Norfolk was a Mordaunt, and Monmouth's first cousin. Her gallantries were notorious, and her husband had, some years before, tried to induce his brother-nobles to pass a bill for dissolving his marriage. But the attempt had been defeated, in consequence partly of the zeal with which Monmouth had fought the battle of his kinswoman. The lady, though separated from her lord, lived in a style suitable to her rank, and associated with many women of fashion, among others with Lady Mary Fenwick, and with a relation of Lady Mary named Elizabeth Lawson. By the instrumentality of the Duchess, Monmouth conveyed to the prisoner several papers containing suggestions framed with much art. Let Sir John, such was the substance of these suggestions, boldly affirm that his confession is true, that he has brought accusations on hearsay, indeed, but not on common hearsay, that he has derived his knowledge of the facts which he has asserted from the highest quarters, and let him point out a mode in which his veracity may easily be brought to the test. Let him pray that the earls of Portland and Romney who are well known to enjoy the royal confidence may be called upon to declare whether they are not in possession of information agreeing with that which he has related. Let him pray that the king may be requested to lay before the Parliament the evidence which caused the sudden disgrace of Lord Marlborough and any letters which may have been intercepted while passing between St. Germain and Lord Godolphin, unless said Monmouth to his female agents sir john is under a fate unless he is out of his mind he will take my counsel if he does his life and honour are safe if he does not he is a dead man when this strange intriguer with his usual license of speech reviled william for what was in truth one of william's best titles to glory he is the worst of men he has acted basely he pretends not to believe these charges against roseberry Russell Marlborough Godolphin, and yet he knows, and Monmouth confirmed the assertion by a tremendous oath, he knows that every word of the charges is true. End of section six Recording by Bill McGovern